Welcome to A Citations Needed News Brief. I am Nima Shirazi. I'm Adam Johnson. We do these news briefs in between our regularly scheduled episodes of Citations Needed, and we are so excited this time around to welcome back friend of the show, Josie Duffy Rice, to Citations Needed to talk about an amazing new podcast series that she created and is hosting, Unreformed, the story of the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children. It's an investigative series, and we are excited to talk about it. There are all sorts of through lines that we talk about. There is media, there is race, there is corporatism and capitalism. Yes, uh, we did get a preview of this. Producer of Citations Needed, Florence Burrow Adams, is the script supervisor on the podcast. So we're excited to have Josie on to talk about her collaboration with Florence and specifically this topic, which intersects, as Nima mentioned, with a lot of stuff we're talking about. So without further ado, we welcome Josie Duffy Rice, friend of the show, Back to citations needed, Josie is a journalist and writer whose work covers policing, prisons, and the criminal legal system, the creator and co-host of the Webby-nominated podcast, Justice in America. Josie is now the creator and host of Unreformed, the story of the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children, a new eight-part investigative limited series, the first episode of which drops today, Wednesday, January 18th. Welcome, Josie, back to Citations Needed. Thank you guys for having me. This new series, Unreformed, that Adam and I were lucky enough to get a little preview of before having you on is really remarkable. And it really weaves together so many things that not only we talk about, but obviously that you have been working on throughout your career. And, you know, we know that this didn't just come together in the past few weeks. This has been a long time coming. This has been a long production. And the result is truly fantastic. I can't wait for everyone to hear it. And we're just excited to have you on to talk about it today. Thank you so much. That's so great to hear. I'm glad you guys liked it. Yeah, there's a ton of history. And I know that one thing people enjoy about our show is we, we get into the, some of the deep history. And so there's a lot of that there. To kind of start off with, though, I want to sort of talk about some broader themes as we, as we try to do in this show. Mm-hmm. Our next episode coming out when we come back from break is about the war on drugs and is about the kind of abstinence-only tough love approach to drugs. So there is some thematic connection there with this idea that a central premise of reformation or reform schools, and it's a theme you touch on a lot, and it still exists today in a slightly less harsh version of what you talk about in the 50s and 60s, but there's this idea that tough love is an axiomatic good, that children who display quote-unquote antisocial behavior simply need to be denied affection. They need to be abused to some varying degrees. You know, they'll stop short of torture, but they'll hit them, whatever sort of the mores of the day are, and they need to be separated from their families. And the assumption is that you need to kind of like shock people out of their bad habits and bad ways. And this premise still informs much of our juvenile justice system, which we can maybe get into a little bit more later. But I want to talk about your show, Unreformed, the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children, the story of that. Uh, start off by talking about how it sort of began and then how it, after, especially after it was taken over by the state of Alabama, how it became a center of torture and abuse ostensibly for their own good and how much of that still kind of lives with us. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really interesting part of the story that I started to realize once I began to look into it, which is this institution began as like this almost too good place for black kids, right? Like people in the community were like, we can't send law-breaking Negro juveniles to a place like this, like they'll be coddled, right? And they certainly weren't coddled even at the very beginning when it was run by this woman named Cornelia Bowen, who was a child of a former enslaved person and a black woman and didn't work for the state of Alabama. Even when she owned it, these kids were not coddled, right? They were, in fact, 
deprived of a lot of the things that children need to become full human beings, full, trusting, emotionally healthy, mentally healthy human beings. So even when it began, it wasn't great, but it was the alternative, right, where it was convict leasing. The alternative was sending this nine-year-old who got picked up for violating curfew to adult prison. And so because everything is relative and we're talking about the early 1900s, like it was better than the alternative, right? But what you see over the next at least 60 years, and this institution is still open, so maybe much longer than that, is that it becomes a center of tough love in the worst possible ways, thinking that you are going to instill the fear of God in children and therefore fix them. And what we saw and what really drew me to this story was just how this specter of state violence from the beginning of these children's lives followed them throughout their lives and ruined their lives, right? For most of the people who went to that school, it still at least haunts them if it didn't literally change the trajectory of their entire lives. Mm -hmm. It's a reminder, right, that like the entire ethos of American discipline is based on this almost like bootstrapsy, punishment-centric, deprive model that I don't know how much more evidence we need that that doesn't work. And this is a good microcosm of that, certainly this school is. Yeah, one thing that I you know really want to talk about is uh, the research that you did for this show. You know, as I kind of mentioned at the top, this didn't happen overnight. So tell us a bit about the process of learning about the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children in the first place, and then how you kind of built this story out and what kind of surprised you along the way. Yeah, it certainly was not a couple, <laughs> not a couple hour process. We've been working on this for about 18 months now. And the reason I got interested in it is because I got an email in my inbox, and this was around the summer of 2021. And it was an email saying, look, we're looking into this school, we're looking into this institution, would you want to come on board on this project? What really pulled me in to this project was the part of the email that highlighted how many former students of this institution ended up on death row or serving life without parole. And the reason that was interesting to me, and by interesting, I mean devastating and horrifying, but also interesting, is because a lot of these kids went into this school for basically nothing, for breaking curfew, for shoplifting something from the, you know, a candy bar. Yeah, like a stick of gum, yeah. Yeah, stick of gum, exactly. Like they didn't go in because they were thought to be sociopathic children. They went in because they had, quote unquote, broken the law, laws that were made for black people only, essentially. And then they were, um, there was nowhere else to send them, right? This was the only place to send them. And so the real research here is obviously, can't really talk to anybody who was around for much of the history of this school. But we did get to talk to a lot of people who were there in the 1960s, which is a part we really focus on. And not only that, we really went back and tried to find all of the people that we could who were still in prison or died in prison and had gone to this institution. It's worth noting that like an Alabama school for black kids, you can imagine that the state wasn't keeping meticulous records. 
there isn't really like a place to go to find out every student that went to this school. It really is quite ad hoc of figuring out where people are. And as you won't be surprised to hear, Alabama wasn't particularly forthcoming with some of the information that they did have. And the reason that I think that's relevant is because at some of these other institutions that we've heard about in the past few years where mistreatment at these juvenile reform schools is not unique to this school. It, it's happened in every state in the country and other countries as well. There have been attempts to kind of bring people together, bring survivors together, fight together for some sort of reparations or answer or apology. And it's been hard to do that at Mount Meg's in particular because this was a school for black kids. And they just didn't, you know, the record keeping was not top notch <laughs> at all. Yeah. So yeah, to that point, the because um, I think one thing people don't quite realize because some people say, okay, well, a lot of them went on to death row it's probably a sample bias because they're in juvenile detention because they're sort of hardened criminals by the age of seven. But we're going to, uh, there's one uh, newspaper clip here from the Watumka Herald that you passed along in your research from March 7th of 1946. Quote, records show that 25% of delinquents committed to the Alabama State Reform School for Juvenile Negro Lawbreakers at Mount Meigs came as a result of, quote, laziness and loitering in the streets, unquote, according to an annual report. So this book is very much parallels books like Slavery by Another Name by David Blackman, right? This idea that that you have a system where the mere existence of being Black and not having a lord or a master you're tethered to at that very moment is itself a form of criminality. Mm -hmm. And that itself means you need to be put in a cage and shown what's up. So once maybe you get out and two or three, four years, and the first thing you do is you go seek a plantation to work on or a, a coke mine to go work. And this kind of racial disciplining is sort of, as you detail, was so central to this idea. So I want to sort of talk about how children kind of get caught up in that mentality where it's like, okay, you're not going to become a state senator or a corporate CEO. We foreclose on your future. Our job is to basically manage the surplus population. There's been a long focus on this kind of scared straight approach to black kids who are born under poverty where they're over, very over-policed and under-resourced for just this purpose. Many charter schools are kind of built around this premise. In fact, there was a 2013 walkout of a charter school because they basically said, so their schools mimic prison. We have to line up on a piece of tape, you know, where uniforms were constantly being disciplined for the most minor infractions. The school to prison pipeline is something people hear a lot about. It's very repeat. They're basically in a form of incarceration from the time they enter the public education system. Their expectations are kept at the bottom of the floor and this kind of carceral system is seen as the result of moral failings on the part of poor people rather than something that is the natural or logical outgrowth of poverty. Yeah. So if you could indulge me for a second, can we talk about and many of these racial disparities in relative terms haven't actually changed much. Right. If you can, can we talk about the sort of incarceration at a very, very young age, ways in which it has improved and then ways it maybe hasn't improved? Yeah, totally. I mean, I would say a couple of things. The first is that it's not even just that these were kids who had theoretically committed some wrong. Some of them, it was, to your point about surplus population, there just was nowhere else for them to go. Both their parents maybe had died and they black kids couldn't go to foster care then, right? Like they couldn't, foster care as an orphanage were often run by churches. Churches weren't required or willing to accept black kids. And what it really meant was exactly what you said, this sort of like, Deciding that there is no other path for these kids than criminality and then literally funneling them into criminality, quite literally. And what I hope that people really take away from listening to this is just 
how defined we are by what happens to us at these very key ages and how the state either chooses to help us become what we can be or prevent us from becoming what we can be. I mean, that's what I really kind of took away from this. Mm -hmm. There's almost a direct, there's almost like very few things are black and white. And this is one of those situations where it feels like such a clear delineation. For example, like you look at how much money the state spends on my kids and you look at how much relatively, how much money the state spent on some of the people that we interviewed. We talked to people who are currently incarcerated. They went into Mount Megs when they were nine or 10. They've maybe not been incarcerated five years of their lives since they went into Mount Megs. I mean, they have spent their entire life as victim of state violence. And by the way, also inflicting some of that violence on others because of what they learned at these institutions. The state has not disposed of them because the state is still paying for them in all the ways in which the state marks value, which mostly is monetary, this person is still on their dime. And yet you can see how the state has ruined them. Like you can see how the entire presence of the like racist, classist, and also just regional American state has defined every contour of these people's lives. And there's this thing that you always hear, right? Kids are resilient. You hear it all the time in the pandemic. And I, I get why. And I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, kids are people and some people are resilient and some are less resilient and they're just as complicated as everybody else. But there is this idea that like you experience something like this, you never really get over it, but you move on. And what I really took from this is how many people do not move on. I mean, how many people, what happened to them from ages nine to 13 they never got to escape it. Now, it's not just, it's not all sadness. You talk to a lot of people who did move on and did get to build a life, right? But the bottom line of just the power of the state against these children is truly like overwhelming. And especially under the guise of reform. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, you know, one thing I really want to talk about is this, this connection we see between Black punishment and Black production. How like, Education is also linked to work, how labor and capitalism is infused consistently in this idea of juvenile detention as being intimately connected with not only reforming oneself, which is, you know, I mean, again, grotesque when considering how young so many of these kids were when they were effectively stolen from their lives and put into this facility, but then the idea of that they have to learn a work ethic and then produce for the state. So, to that point, coming back to some of the media surrounding Mount Megs, which is, you know, the informal name for this institution, in your research you also uncovered a number of news articles, you know, over the decades reporting about this reform school. Uh, so I just want to read two that cover a span of a couple decades and just have you comment on it. This first one is from November 4th, 1912 published in the Selma Times Journal, and it is headlined 900 bushels, 30 acres. And the text reads like this, quote, the Negro Reform School at Mount Meigs, Alabama has done a wonderful work this year. This is one of the state's youngest wards, and it is a place where young Negro boys criminally inclined are sent for reformation. There they are taught how to work. They have competent leaders to show them how to work, and they also have overseers and superintendents who insist on them working after they are shown how. What is the result? The report of the school 
just issued, shows that they gathered 900 bushels of corn from 30 acres of land. That is not bad considering the fact it used to require about 30 acres to get 100 bushels. The best thing that can be taught to the Negroes of Alabama is how to work and to work the farms, end quote. That's from 1912. Then, 20 years later, from March 1932, in the Birmingham News, there's this, headlined, A Place of Plenty. Quote, On a recent visit to the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Boys and Girls at Mount Meigs, I found it to be in a prosperous condition and doing a surprisingly good work, said Miss Bess Adams, Assistant County Child Welfare Superintendent at Gadsden. I was much interested in the smokehouse, which contained more than 5,000 pounds of home-raised meat and dozens of hams. I saw also several barrels of homemade lard, 2,000 cans of fruit, and a lot of other food produced on the school farm, mostly by the 360 boys in the institution. I saw gorgeous pumpkins, much corn, peas, syrup, and the like. In fact, all the school really has to buy is flour, sugar, salt, and coffee. In addition, there are 125 cows on the place, and every child has at least one pint of milk a day. The children have also all the pecans they can eat, end quote. Yeah. It's shocking, right, the way that they talked about the school. And to your point, it is all about production. It is all about how much can the students at the school actually make. So I think there are a couple of things worth noting about this. The first is that this is the only way the school got funded. Other juvenile reformatories, there were two other ones in the state of Alabama, two other main ones, one for white boys and one for white girls. They had some state funding. I don't want to make it sound like they were like bastions of excellence. They were not, but they had many times the state funding that Mount Meigs had. And that's because the state kind of told Mount Meigs, look, if you want it, you got to work enough to make it. You have to work enough to fund it. And so that meant that the incentive to ever have these kids do anything but work was gone because they were trying to make enough money to keep the lights on, essentially. But, you know, the other part of this that I think is worth noting is just to your point about the media, the kind of human rights abuses happening at this institution that when I say unimaginable, I feel like that word is thrown around a lot. And yet that's not what the media covers. The media literally covers how much these children can produce. Right. And what this meant was that by the 1960s, these kids, and mostly, I mean, it was a co-ed school at this point, but I'm speaking specifically of the boys, were sent out into the fields and told they can come back when their sack weighs 100 pounds. They had to pick 100 pounds of cotton every day. And we kind of heard that number and we were like, well, that can't possibly be right. Like, that's such a high number, right? Like, someone is just misremembering. But the number of different people that we heard that from, that is the number they were given, and why? Because like people at the school are at fault for a lot of this, but the incentives are also at fault for a lot of this, right? A lot of this is the state of Alabama. A lot of this is like capitalism. Right. Obviously, this is taken to an extreme, but this is kind of the logical end of how we value both kids, Black people, and money in this country. Well, yeah, because I mean, it's just like the, it's like a chain gang school. I mean, the, the idea is, you know, they're not reporting on like how many poems kids wrote. The incentive is purely industrial. Or, you know, agricultural industrial. I mean, it literally is called, like, the industrial school. I mean, like... Right. They're not hiding it at all. It's right there. But, I mean, when you realize that and then you think about these literal children, it is stark to realize that they would even call this a school. 
Totally. And they didn't, I mean, you know, they really didn't go to school. I mean, some people said they went a few hours a week. Others said they didn't go at all. Like there was no school happening here. It's also worth noting that a lot of these kids, just by function of geography, right, were coming from relatively big cities, especially at the time. We're talking about kids coming from Birmingham, coming from Mobile, coming from Montgomery. They are cities, especially relative to the rural areas of Alabama. And they really had no need to learn agricultural systems. Like they weren't going to be farmers. Like that wasn't their future. That wasn't even their future if they ended up doing blue collar work in their community. Like that wasn't their community. But in the minds of the state, Black people work in fields. And even if like you've never been in a field in your life, you are built for this, you are meant for this, and this is what we can extract from you. This is how we extract value from you. Yeah, I mean, to the point that this was not at all kind of hidden in the purpose of this, going back to that article that Adam referenced earlier, the Wetumpka Herald from March 1946, you know, one of the things it says in reporting on a report that was submitted by the superintendent to the governor of Alabama, it says this, quote, the report noted also that, quote, most of our inmates when enrolled are undernourished, low-spirited, and emaciated. In spite of these physical handicaps, they have been developed through proper nourishment, physical exercise, and medical treatment into robust young men and women, end quote. So remember, they're even being referred to by the state as inmates constantly. Right. And look, there's a couple things worth noting here. One, the state had custody, essentially, of these kids, right? I mean, explicitly. Your kid gets arrested. At this point, this is a 1946 article, they're not entitled to a lawyer when they go in front of a judge, if they go in front of a judge. They're sent away to this institution, and maybe you hear from them, maybe you don't. Maybe you see them again, maybe you don't. We found articles saying kids had been there, were there, you know, had been there since 11 and were still there at 25, mm. right? And they just didn't know they could leave. I mean, I think the other thing worth noting about that sentence that is like, when they come here, they're emaciated. But then we make them into, you know, we nourish them. It's into like, like good workers. Yeah. Maybe that's why they were shoplifting from the grocery store because they were emaciated. Right. But, you know, I think like the other thing worth noting about that is like, it's just a lie. They barely fed these kids. They went there and worked harder. But these are kids who were, I mean, eating food out of cow droppings because they had so little food. They were not going there and being even built to work. They were just being forced to work. Right? They were not being invested in on any level, whether it's picking cotton or being in a classroom. They were, again, deprived and forced to work 16 hours a day regardless. I want to ask about the current state of incarcerating children. There's about 50,000 minors currently incarcerated in this country. Recently, a six-year-old brought a gun to school and shot a teacher. And there was a much maligned NPR headline that read, quote, a six-year-old child shot his teacher at a Virginia elementary school on Friday, police say. Now authorities face the uncomfortable question, how should they prosecute a crime committed by a first grader? Which elicited much outrage and incredulity for obvious reasons, which is he's fucking six. You don't prosecute a six-year-old. Right. But this carceral impulse is strong in this country, as you know. Demanding caging is the primary language that one expresses empathy and compassion, right? Because by definition, if I'm calling for some murderer to get life sentences versus you who's calling him for to get 20 years, by definition, I care more than you and you're a heartless monster. That's how we articulate compassion. And this kind of warped Puritan logic, moralism, it's obviously 
problematic in every context, but it begins to really kind of break down when we talk about how to kind of quote unquote punish children because we sort of routinely understand they have diminished mental capacity, right, wrong decisions, all that kind of impulse control, all that fun stuff. So if you can, I want to kind of talk about the current state of incarceration for children. I know at the appeal and Justice Collaborative, this was something that you had worked on and talked about. Obviously, it's improved from these sort of overt slave conditions, but I think it's there are many similarities that maybe would make our listeners somewhat uncomfortable. Can we talk about what's improved and what is not improved with a sort of broader picture about incarceration of children, especially in places like Alabama? Sure. I mean, I think on some level it has improved. To your point, there are still 50,000 kids incarcerated. And by the way, there are 10,000 of those kids are incarcerated in adult facilities. I mean, I was at a prison last, I guess, spring and was speaking to three kids incarcerated in an adult prison in Tennessee. Things have changed, but they actually haven't changed as much as one would imagine. And I think that is reflective of a couple things. One is a lack of imagination. And I think that's really clear in what the response was to this story about the six-year-old. And I think about the story about the six-year-old, and I think also about the school shooting story that happened a few months ago of the boy who took a gun to school and his parents, do you remember this? His parents knew he, I think it was in Wisconsin. His parents knew he had a gun and they had bought him a gun and he had like expressed anger and dislike and the tone was this was predictable and the parents should have avoided it. It's not that I think that that's wrong. It's that I think that that is incompatible with our American fetishization of violence and guns and that we have created a system where we believe that the methods of harm should be available to everybody and then we are surprised when children are capable of harm. And then our response to that is to punish them like adults. One of the ways that that really still happens, right, is that kids being sentenced to life without parole. It happens, right, that people are sentenced to life without parole. They will never leave prison for a crime they committed as a child. And to be clear, the, the U.S. is unique in that. Yeah. We, uh, we're the only country that has felony murder, but also puts people in prison for life as juveniles, right? Just to clarify, that's not normal. That's not normal. And it's worth noting that, look, when here, I live in Atlanta, and one thing I noticed that during the pandemic when the number of murders was increasing was that a lot of the people committing, you know, arrested for those murders and accused of those murders were kids. They were 15 to 17 years old. And what I take from that is not that, like, we're not putting kids away for long enough, right? It's that we are, like, not taking care of children. We do not take care of children. We do not make it possible for kids to be kids, not just post-sentencing, but pre-sentencing, right? I mean, it's truly not uncommon to see 17, 18-year-olds sentenced to decades in prison, if not life without parole. And it really underscores the ways in which we're willing to treat the most vulnerable among us. I mean, the truth is that, and uh, someone says this on the podcast, right? Like, kids don't vote. They're at the total mercy of policymakers. And policymakers think of kids as a symbol, as a talking point very often, rather than vulnerable people who need help and who are capable of so many things along the spectrum of good to bad, just like all of us. And I think that, like, look, Mount Megs is still open. So <laughs> the idea of whether or not, like, it's changed enough, I would argue 
it almost hasn't changed at all. Some parts of it have changed, like you can't have a school just for black kids anymore in Alabama. But when I drove by Mount Megs, I can tell you that the only people I saw there were black kids. And so I don't know how much it's actually changed. Yeah, there's a de facto du jour thing here. What what percentage of Mount Megs is black? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I mean, what, 90%? I have, I mean, the, here's the other thing, and back to the media point, right? Like, I know less about Mount Megs today than I do about Mount Megs in 1970. Like, there was more media, and that reporting wasn't great, but it existed. And I think this kind of gets back to something I've thought about a lot in the past couple of years. Like, is it <laughs> is it better to have a lot of bad media or no media? <laughs> and I'm not sure because like a lot of the coverage of Mount Megs was just terrible. I mean, like nobody was really doing their job. But without that coverage, I'd have a much less clear picture of what was happening at the time. I mean, at least there was infrastructure for telling some of these stories. I don't I don't know what the journalism landscape looks like in Montgomery right now, but I'm assuming that it looks like it does in a lot of places across America, almost empty or not what it once was. And it's just a reminder. I mean, it's sort of shocking to think about how little I know about this institution after looking at it for a year and a half, like what a black box it is for me today, this moment. I don't know what's happening there. And I don't know how I would even begin to kind of find out. Right. It's actually kind of fascinating that, you know, we read these horrifying clips from news articles from all these little local papers. Right. But there are local papers. Exactly. And now there are no local papers, or I mean, you know, obviously fewer and fewer because of consolidation, because of closing, because of no one can sustain this. And there's no local reporting infrastructure in most of the country at this point. And so the idea that, yes, maybe you're getting or almost definitely getting a certain kind of perspective in the reporting. But at least you can try and suss that out because it exists. But if there is nothing, if it's just completely disappeared behind these iron gates, whether it's in a state house or a state correctional facility or an industrial school for Negro children, you can't even read between the lines because there are no lines. Right. And, you know, this goes back to something that I did a story last year in Tennessee, and I talked to a local reporter who'd been working there maybe, I think, 40 years at that point. And one of the things she said, I've thought about it every day since, which is just about norms, basically. It used to be that you went to the police precinct and there was a reporter there. Maybe the reporter was way too close to the cops. Like, maybe it's still copaganda. Like, maybe they're just sort of taking the cops at their word, but there is names and a record and something to account for an event happening. And I think that's sort of the truth of how things were at Mount Megs. Like, I don't have a very clear picture of the local media landscape today in Montgomery. So some of what I'm saying is assumption because it's what I've seen so many other places, right? But it's like, you don't have the relationships. Like, you don't know who to call. You get a tip and not only do you not have the time or the capacity to investigate it, like, it's hard when you don't even know where to start because part of what journalism is is having your pulse on the people in power across a region. And you can't do that with five reporters covering everything, right? Like right. you need to actually be able to have your body somewhere, have someone expect you, have someone expect accountability in a way that like doesn't exist anymore. I mean, I can't tell you all, and Florence knows this, like how hard we tried to get into Mount Megs to do a tour, to get other people, people who had actually gone there, students to get in, to get a former probation officer in. Like, 
we couldn't do it. And there's no reason that they would let us in. There's no there's no incentive for them to be open. Zero. And so there's no accountability. And like, even if you think, even in the days when I'm not excusing terrible journalism, because I mean, that presents its own problems. Don't get me wrong. It's hard to know the counterfactual. But I do think we underestimate the absolute terror to human rights and democracy <laughs> that is the absence of any local accountability whatsoever. I mean, you guys don't underestimate it, but the general world. Yeah, it's the timeless question is that which is worse, no journalism or bad journalism? Sometimes it's hard to say. Yeah. So your podcast, Unreformed, the story of Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children, which can be found at finer podcast stores everywhere, today, January 18th. So if you're listening to this and you want to listen to it, you can go listen to it after this. We're releasing every Wednesday, <laughs> which sort of citations. So, you know, ah, prioritize. Do them both. So, um, <laughs> uh, I want to leave with a question that is maybe not so bleak. I think this is pr pretty typical on the show. It's been quite depressing. Um, but your story is not bleak. Your show is deliberately not about that. It is very much a story of hope as well. And specifically, you tell the tales of people who did kind of come out the other end, whose perseverance and humanity kind of broke through the opacity that you talk about. And they tell their stories. And they those stories inform their art, their faith, their families, the families that they raise and presumably trying to visit the horrors that were visited upon them. And you're talking to some of these elders, for want of a better term, who've lived through these things. What do you think are some lessons in 2023 that activists, uh, lawyers, incarcerated people can kind of take away from their experience to try to change this system, this punitive system that you work so hard to undo? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And well, first, I want to say thank you for pointing out that it's not just depressing, because it isn't just depressing. It's important. I don't like sad movies. I don't like stuff that's too sad. The world is very sad right now. I want people to be able to listen to this. And there are definitely sad moments. But, you know, I think the end is hopeful. And part of the reason the end is hopeful is because of something that I'm particularly interested in just as a as a human faculty, right, which is the capacity for forgiveness. What really I find just mind-blowing about so many people that we talked to, the team talked to, was this, many of these people are in their 70s now, and they think to themselves like, well, I wonder what had to have happened to the people who did this to us for them to do this, for them to inflict this level of harm. And I think like that to me gives me a lot of hope because I think there's a lot that's hopeful here, right? Like many of these people are doing the best that they can. One is a world-renowned artist. Others have done stuff like adopted children, foster children so that they don't end up in the same place. Like people have made a way out of no way, the way that especially black people in America have been doing for generations. But really the level of forgiveness that people express to us for this abject, immeasurable harm that they endured gives me hope for the human condition because it is a reminder that there is a certain vulnerability and promise in our ability to have empathy and kindness and understanding even of the worst parts of us. And I don't know that I could do the same thing, but that's really what I took away from this. Like, it's really easy to kind of source this back to one bad guy or 10 bad people or a hundred bad people. But the levels of harm that 
other people endured, especially, I think, the Black people at this institution who worked there who also inflicted a ton of harm, what they must have known, what they must have seen is hard to imagine, too. And so I'm interested in mercy and forgiveness as just conceptually, but I think that in particular has stuck with me, and I think it's the most beautiful part of what I learned from the people that we talked to. Yeah, I found that really remarkable about the series, Josie, you know, the idea that Yes, it's about a school that allegedly exists for reformation, and yet it is, you know, not a place of forgiveness and mercy. But the survivors of it instill so much of that forgiveness and mercy and truth and trust and solidarity. And, you know, throughout this series, you know, it in your storytelling, you just consistently subvert and surprise the listener. You know, assumptions are challenged. And, you know, yes, you're kind of recounting of course, the horrors committed, but it also is fundamentally a story of resistance and uh, strength. So excited to have spoken to you today and really do hope that listeners of Citations Needed will also listen to Unreformed, all eight episodes, the first of which has dropped today. That is Wednesday, January 18th. If you are listening to this either today, Wednesday, January 18th, or any day after that, you can listen to this new series. New episodes are going to be released every Wednesday for the next seven weeks. All that is left to do is thank you, our guest today and friend of the show, Josie Duffy Rice, journalist, writer, whose work covers policing, prisons, and the criminal legal system, creator and co-host of the Webby-nominated podcast, Justice in America. Josie is now the creator and host of Unreformed, the story of the Alabama Industrial School for Negro Children, a new eight-part investigative limited podcast series, the first episode of which, as we've been saying, dropped today, January 18th. Thank you so much, Josie, again, for joining us today on Citations Needed. Thank you. I am also, you forgot a very key part of my title. I am Citations Needed's biggest number one fan. There you go. Thank you. Okay. You you'll always get invited back on with flattery. We're very venal. We're very susceptible. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I'm no being idea. dead serious. Appreciate it. Dead serious. You know, it's my favorite. And I am really grateful for you all having me on here anytime. Don't really leave my house. <laughs> Anytime you guys want to hang out. Unless you're trying to get into a uh, gated school for... Until you're trying to get into a gated place. <laughs> Thank you so much. And that will do it for this Citations Needed news brief. Of course, you can catch the show regularly coming out on Wednesdays. We're going to be back very soon with more full-length episodes. So stay tuned for those. Of course, in the meantime, you can follow the show on Twitter at Citations Pod, Facebook, Citations Needed, and if you are so inclined, become a supporter of the show through patreon.com slash citations needed podcast. All your support through Patreon is incredibly appreciated as we are 100% listener funded. But until next time, thank you so much for listening. I am Nima Shirazi. I'm Adam Johnson. Citations Needed senior producer is Florence Borough Adams. Our producer is Julianne Tweeten. Production assistant is Trenda Lightburn. Newsletter by Marco Cardellano. Transcriptions are by Morgan McCaslin. The music is by Granddaddy. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time. 